And the young people who don't have memories of a society that had guardrails, they feel that they've received no usable inheritance, not at the level of how do you form a family, not at the level of how do you relate to God and scripture, not at the level of how do I keep my nation going, and how, or why would I even want to keep my nation going. Today I sit down with political theorist Yoram Chazoni, chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation, president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem, and author of the new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. In the face of an ever more radical left, many on the right seem to have lost sight of what conservatism really is, he argues. It can't just be about conserving liberty and individual freedom, but rather needs to be grounded in other principles, like national cohesion and religious faith, he says. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Yoram Chazoni, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. It's great to see you, Jan. I, I, pleasure to be here. So I've really been enjoying reading your book, a Conservatism, A Rediscovery. And so let's just start off there. I mean, is conservatism still alive? How, why does it need to be rediscovered? That's a very good question. I think a lot of people who uh, associated with the, the conservative movement for decades have been asking themselves exactly that question. Um, I, I, as I write in the book, I and you know my wife, my friends, we we kind of signed up for to be activists and members and enthusiasts of the conservative movement when we, when we were in college in the 1980s. Uh, Ronald Reagan was the president, and Thatcher was prime minister, and Pope John Paul II was you know the the first Polish um, uh, the first po- Polish pope, and the the three of them were locked in this kind of civilizational struggle against communism. And uh, today, when people look back on that, there's, you know, th- th- there's a very strong interpretation that goes, um, the 1980s conservatives were only, conser- they were only concerned with individual liberties, you know, the free market, free trade. Th- th- there's that kind of an, an image that I think those of us who were there uh, in those days uh, w- wouldn't really have recognized it. Uh, in uh, in the 1980s, the common way of thinking about conservatism in the United States and in in, in Britain, I think, was expressed by uh, Irving Kristol, who um, who described modern conservatism as having three pillars: religion, nationalism, and economic growth. And of of those three, he he explicitly thought that religion was 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 the most important. That's the conservative movement that I joined. And someplace along the way, the religion part and the nationalism part dropped out. And, uh, and what came to be called conservatism is only the freedoms, you know, the freedoms of the market and other individual liberties. Now, liberties are obviously important. We cherish them and we value them. But I don't think it's possible to have anything conserved by a movement that's only, only interested in individual freedom. Individual freedom taken by itself in its pure form without any other principles to balance it. Individual freedom is not about conserving anything. It's, it, it, it's the opposite. It's about saying the, we don't owe the past anything. We don't have any duty of handing down and transmitting things. So uh, the, the present day conservative movement is certainly, uh, uh, certainly quite confused that you, you, you run into you know, prominent people who say what we're conserving is liberty, what we're conserving conserving is liberalism. 
And this leads you into a confusion that's so thorough that I, I, I think you simply can't understand anything. And so w one of the first pur purposes of this book is to, uh, it, is to remind everyone about uh, the many centuries of Anglo-American conservatism and, and what it was and what it stood for and uh, to allow people to make a decision. Am I, am I a conservative or am I a liberal? So, well, and so you make a pretty strong contention in the book, and I think it's also part of your reason for writing it, which is, and I'm actually gonna read the line because I think it's, uh, it bears, uh, bears doing that. Five years of political upheaval from 2016 to 2020 was all it took to shatter the hegemony of Enlightenment liberalism. So, Enlightenment liberalism is shattered? Well, the, the hegemony of, I mean, Enlightenment liberalism is still very much alive in the hearts and minds of people who believe in it, but the, the, the number of those people is quickly decreasing, declining, and, and their influence has been, in fact, I think has been shattered. I think um, when, when, when you look at uh, the, the, the history of post-war uh, liberalism uh, uh, in the United States and Britain and in other countries. After World War II, I think it's fair to say that by the 1960s there was a consensus that, um, that uh, uh, the public uh, uh, philosophy of the West was going to be something called liberal democracy. That was a new term. I mean, uh, FDR, I don't think, would ever have used a term like that. F FDR was still talking about God-fearing democracy. But God-fearing democracy became liberal democracy in the wake of World War II. And there's about 60 years you know, from the 1960s until a couple of years ago in which I, I think the main institutions responsible for uh, developing and, uh, and dissemin disseminating ideas, uh, certainly in America and in the UK, were, were liberal. They were expressly liberal. And, and you know both Democrats and Republicans, they had different versions of liberalism, but they were all you know they, they all fundamentally were based on the idea that individual freedom is 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 the heart of the political order, and we, we don't if you have that you don't really need much else. In uh, twenty twenty, we see something very different. Uh, the New York Times, the leading uh, journalistic uh, exponent for liberalism for for all those decades, the New York Times. Uh, dismissed some of its key liberal, uh, key proponents of liberalism in order to accommodate a, a, a woke neo-Marxism. Uh, and that accommodation was, was then repeated across, you know, across the United States and Britain. I went to Princeton University, and at Princeton, they decided the time has come to remove Woodrow Wilson's name from the buildings. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, of course, was president of Princeton University in, in addition to being president of the United States. And you, you can't have a more uh, obvious figure of, of, uh, you know, of a liberal intellectual and a liberal uh, political leader, uh, but he was, too, you know, he, he, he was too toxic for Princeton University. So they, they scrubbed his name from the buildings, and Princeton now is under the thumb of this uh, woke neo-Marxist ideology. You, you can repeat that across dozens of uh, major institutions, educational, businesses, uh, uh, parts of the US government bureaucracy, even the military. Um, so 
I don't think there's any question that 2020 is is the, is a watershed year in which the idea that you had to be a liberal in order to be in good standing in the United States ended. And that's why I say that the hegemony of liberal ideas have, have ended. Now there's a, an attempt uh, by uh, the woke neo-Marxists, the, the, the progressives, the, this new ideological movement to establish its own hegemony so that if, if you don't go along with woke, then you're not gonna be a member of American or British society in good standing. Um, we still don't know if that's going to succeed, but it's, it's working real well. And when we talk about the shattering of the hegemony of liberal ideas, we should also notice that that has freed up uh, on the political right. It has uh, opened up the possibility of new ideas coming from, from the right. And so it's an especially important moment to be, uh, to be sharpening our understanding of, of what is the conservative alternative. What do conservatives have to offer? Uh, how are they different from Marxists and liberals? And you know that, that that's the reason for the book right now. And and frankly, other brands of right wing uh, thought, right? Yes, for sure. Um, I, I I I think it's important. It's important to to emphasize that when uh, when the hegemony, like the rule of the, the dominance of a certain set of ideas, when it breaks, as it has, um, new ideas start to arise from all directions. And some of them are, are, are healthy, good ideas, and some of them are, are desperate and even crazy. And uh, when we look at the, at the American right today, I'm talking about uh, especially uh, among young people, there is a tendency, which I, I don't think can be denied, there's a tendency among uh, especially people on the right, let's say under 30, um, to say, look, I, I've never seen conservatism conserve anything in, you know, in my life. It, it, it's all a, it's a fraud. Uh, and and uh, they'll, you know, if you try to talk to them about you know, Christianity or Judaism, the Bible, uh, the, the great Anglo-American tradition, um, they'll, they'll say, look, all of that has failed. The American constitution has failed. It's a, it's a failure. And uh, they are willing to consider other things. And, and, and there are uh, uh, characters on, on, on the fringes of the right um, who write books proposing dictatorship, uh, different kinds of dictatorships. You know, so there's sec secular technocratic dictatorship, and there's you know, Catholic world empire dictatorship, and, and, and all sorts of different uh, versions of um, let's just abandon the past for some kind of uh, fantastic alternative. Uh, these are not conservative alternatives, but, uh, but they're, they're clearly on the right. They're attacking the left and saying, no, we don't want, we don't want the leftist revolution. We want, to, we, want, we want our own kind of revolution. Well, so let's do a little bit of definitions here because uh, I think you mentioned, certainly in the book you mentioned, alluded to it a little bit earlier, that there's confusion even among conservatives of what, what that actually means and how it is distinct from liberalism, which you know you argue is is failing. Sure. Um, look, the, the the most important thing about to understand about traditional Anglo-American conservatism, this great movement that has existed for many centuries, it is a movement that uh, uh, a political movement that focuses attention on the question of what do you need to do in order to be able to 
uh, to transmit your, uh, uh, your nation, its values, its, uh, its uh, identity, its, its coherent standing from one generation to the next. Uh, a conservative is somebody who, um, who uh, considers national and religious traditions to be the key to strengthening the nation and to maintaining it over time. Right, so, uh, so conservatives begin with that question, with, with the question of, let's say that, that I consider there to be something good in our inherit, inheritance, religious national inheritance. How do I, what do I have to do in order that you know, my children and my, my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren will still have the benefits of this inheritance? Now that whole, that whole way of thinking is, is pretty alien to, uh, to Enlightenment liberalism. Uh, the Enlightenment liberalism is a uh, uh, w was uh, in in invented uh, mostly during you know the uh, during the the, the 1600s 1700s. It's a rationalist theory um, whose purpose is to try to figure out what what universally for all, for all all human beings for all time in all ages in all countries what's the right form of government. And so it's it's an approach that that begins with the assumption that there is a right form of government for you know for all people and that we can just figure it out if we if we reason well enough it's an anti-traditionalist philosophy liberalism because because what it does is it says what we need is to reason if we think properly if we think clearly we'll we'll get to the right answers and tradition is seen as uh, as something cumbersome that prevents you from being able to get to the right answers so um, liberals and conservatives can share various, uh, the, there are things that we do share uh, because uh, conservatives also are, uh, at least you know, in the English and American tradition, the British and American tradition, conservatives are concerned um, and, uh, uh, about individual liberties among other things. But, uh, and, and that means that, uh, let's say during the Cold War, when uh, William Buckley, uh, who saw himself as you know as an individualist, uh, at, you know, which is to say as a kind of as a, as a kind of liberal. Um, when William Buckley proposed this alliance between uh, liberals and conservatives to fight Marxism, to fight communism abroad, and to roll back socialism at home, he was eventually able to patch together a coalition of liberals and conservatives, but. Liberalism and conservatism as ideas continued to, be, to, to, to stand in terrific tension because the conservative is asking, what do we need to do in order to maintain ourselves and, and transmit certain ideas? And to do that, you have to, have, you have to create norms. You have to create guardrails. You have to say, you know, uh, this range is, uh, of, of behaviors and ideas, that, you know, this is what we stand for. And uh, liberals say almost the opposite. Liberals say, no, everybody needs to be free to choose about just about everything. And uh, um, today, uh, when we see a society in which all the guardrails are, you know, they're, they're pretty much gone. I mean, every day some wild uh, new thing is proposed as the, um, you know, is pr proposed as the, uh, the new way that society should be structured, and uh, and the young people who don't have so much 
of, who don't remember, who don't have memories of a society that had guardrails and what it was like, um, I don't think they're especially happy with the fact that they, they feel that they've received no use, usable inheritance, not at the level of how do you form a family, not at the level of how, how do you uh, relate to God and scripture, not at the level of how do I keep my nation going, and how, or why would I even want to keep my nation going? All of these questions, they, they hang very heavily on, uh, on a young generation uh, which feels that it, it has no inheritance. And so the question that you know, we, we, we need to deal with as conservatives, we have to listen to what they're saying, and we have to respond to the question of you know, wh why, sh why should you be a conservative and not a liberal? Well, you're just making me think of something uh, that, that you wrote in the book, which is the idea that you, you need the cultural history of, let's say, for, for lack of a better term, a nation or something like that, when you're you know, creating laws and rules and ideas and how you're going to govern. Those things are very, very important. You can't just impose you know, whatever you believe, which would be the liberal view, Right of of how things actually should be right. So and then I think I think it's written in there that you know when that doesn't work, like and I keep I kept thinking about Afghanistan, right? Um, you know when it doesn't work, the liberals will say, well, it's a bad bad implementation on our part, but the conservatives would say, well, actually you didn't factor in all of this cultural history yes. uh, in doing this. Right? Yeah, absolutely. If we uh, let, let's take a few examples, um, uh, American foreign policy in the last thirty years. Uh, has been uh, explicitly called a, a, a liberal internationalist foreign policy. And, uh, and you can see by looking at um, uh, American involvement in Iraq, Afghanistan, in the Balkans, in Somalia, in Libya, in, in uh, all of these, these places and more, um, for, for 30 years, I mean, pretty much since, since the, Bush, the, the first Bush administration, uh, the United States had a foreign policy that was based on this idea that liberalism is all you need and everybody should embrace it. You know, that, that's what people, people were talking about, the end of history. What that meant was that uh, there's not going to be a struggle of, over ideas anymore it, because, because liberalism just is the, it's the final answer. We just have the answer. And, and now all we need to do is go and explain it to people or you know, you know, maybe we'll have to do some bombing and then explain it to people. But if you did that, the assumption is, well, why wouldn't Afghanis and Iraqis and, 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 and Serbians and, and everybody else become just liberals? Let's take a couple more examples of the same thing. Um, the idea that free trade, freedom, liberal policies of trade would turn China into a liberal democracy. I mean, everybody believed that. In the, the, China was, was entered the World Trade Organization because uh, the, the, uh, the Americans, American leaders of both parties believed that China was on the verge of becoming a liberal democracy like the United States. And all they succeeded in doing really is in building up you know, this fearsome rival which remains uh, as authoritarian or even more so than, than, than it was 30 years ago. So that's a second example of uh, how the lib liberal framework, which is just based on freedom, says let's just have free trade 
and and it'll convince everybody that that all they need is freedom, and then the world will simply just move towards this the, the, this worldview. And in fact, we we did the opposite. The, the opposite happened. That the 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 Chinese uh, government never ceased to be authoritarian. In in fact, they simply believe that their authoritarianism is better than American liberalism. They they, they look down at American liberalism, and and the West has created this this fearsome rival that that may actually win. Be, because of these liberal policies. Uh, a third, third example, obviously, uh, uh, immigration policies. The, the problem with the idea of individual liberty is it doesn't, if, if every human being has the right to be equally free, then how can you justify borders? You know, how can you justify telling, telling certain people, no, you're not allowed to enter my country? It, it, from, from the perspective of, of, a, of a, uh, a pure enlightenment liberalism, the, the whole idea that you should have borders and, 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 and distinguish between your own citizens and, and non-citizens, it looks like racism. And you, you can just go on and on. This uh, view that only liberty, the equality of liberties for everybody in the nation and everybody in the world, that view is a, it, it's impossible to maintain it. It, it, it's, it simply leads you to one destructive policy after another at the at the at the level of government, but at the level of the individual, it's it, it's even more damaging because because it it, it uh, opens up sort of a, a a chaos of alternatives, where every alternative se seems to be equally the same. So we're living in this, I think, what you describe as a dangerous time, where you know there's new ideas kind of um, vying for, for supremacy. But sort of, and on this, you know, foreign policy or international front, of course, we have the Russia-Ukraine war, right? And I think, I mean, it's being portrayed uh, as a kind of, you know, liberalism versus authoritarianism right. picture, right? But I, I'm guessing you, would, you don't see it that way. No, I think, I, I think that this is, when we talk about uh, the, the, the hegemony of liberal ideas, what, exact, it, exactly what is meant is that, that large numbers of people, especially in the elites, the decision makers, they, they can't look at anything uh, at any level as anything other than uh, individual liberties versus authoritarianism. That, 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 that straitjacket ends up being imposed on every issue, every political issue, every international and domestic issue. So uh, this is a great example. They, they, many people in, you know, in, in, in uh, uh, elite opinion makers in, in, in the United States and, and, uh, and in Britain, many people genuinely think that the Ukraine is, is fighting for liberal democracy and, uh, and, and that, uh, you know, the, the, that it's the same what what the, what they're thinking is something like Trump is evil, uh, the Democrats are good, Putin is Trump, and Ukraine is the Democrats. Right? None, none of this is true. I mean, it it it, it is true that that uh, Putin that the Russian Russian government is uh, is an imperialist government, and that it's in, it, it's uh, invasion of Ukraine is an example of. Uh, of a, uh, a, a thuggish imperialism. That, that part is true. But if you want to know what Ukrainians are fighting for, um, what they're fighting for is the independence of their nation. Uh, 
of their national inheritance, of their religious inheritance. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they have a, a, a history that's a thousand years long, and they would like to be able to live in, in accordance to uh, their own traditions and their own values, make their own decisions instead of having them made in Moscow. So a, a conservative would say, you know, you have no idea whether they're you know, whether there are liberals fighting in, in Ukraine or not. I mean, it, 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 liberalism is completely alien to, to the question of what's actually happening there. Let's, let's look a little bit closer to home then, because we're here in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, steps away from the Supreme Court. And, you know, there's been this, uh, you know, opinion circulated in an unprecedented fashion, suggesting that Roe versus Wade is about to be struck down. Um, and there's protests in front of the, some of the justices' homes even. And it, it, does, it appears that there is, hasn't been a lot of work done to, to I guess, protect them. I mean, that, that, that's at least what, what it looks like to me. So, so how, does, how does your thinking inform this situation and this kind of chaos? Well, I, 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 th I think that we're seeing, uh, we're, we're seeing uh, the decay of American democracy. Uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, it was legitimate. There was a legitimate debate between liberal, liberals and conservatives. It was, it, it, people understood that you know, when, 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 uh, when Reagan was in government, um, a key part of Reagan's coalition was, uh, uh, was Christian conservatives, both, both, both Protestant and Catholics. And uh, people like you know, uh, uh, Jerry Falwell or um, or Billy Graham, uh, were an integral part of the Reagan coalition at the political level. And thinkers like Irvin Kristol, I've already mentioned this, saw religion as being at the, at, at the heart of what conservatism was, was about. And uh, you know, so in those days, there, there was nothing surprising at all about President Reagan um, proposing uh, a constitutional amendment to allow prayer in the public schools in the United States. That that was the side that Reagan was on, and and you know people on the left disagreed with it. They they disliked it. They they called him names, but they but it, it, there was an assumption that it was legitimate that in in a democracy it was legitimate that 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 there could be conservatives who have conservative ideas and conservative platform, and uh, and that they're allowed to advance it. What what we're seeing in the United States in the, in the last five six years is the end of this uh, mutual legitimacy. The uh, one side has moved so far left that it now considers you know, uh, obvious examples of, uh, of uh, uh, religious-based conservatism or tradition-based conservatism as simply beyond the pale. Like, it, it's, it's not a matter of we're being outvoted in a free election. Uh, in, in a free vote. It's a matter of, this is absolutely illegitimate. It's not allowed to happen. It has to be stopped by any means. You can only maintain a democracy if each side grants the legitimacy of the other. And uh, con conservatives are, are, are at, at this point, very far from being legitimate in the eyes of the progressives who have taken over much of the, uh, much of the left and, and most of the formerly liberal institutions. Well, and so this is, I think you're speaking to perhaps why, I'm wondering, there are probably people wondering about this, like why is it that some of the uh, 
pro-abortion protesters are not protesting necessarily just at um, pro-life establishments, for lack of a better term, but or, or pro-life uh, organizations, but specifically, but are actually going to churches um, and and protesting in front of churches. Again, because uh, because the uh, the the old liberal deal in which uh, churches were going to stay, you know, ch ch churches were not going to be supported by, uh, by the state, but they could be free to, uh, to, um, to express their opinions, to have a, an intellectual influence, to have a spiritual influence. That was the old liberal order. We're not there anymore. That is, that has simply come to an end. Un in, in the new order that's emerging, many people see Christianity simply as uh, as something that shouldn't be uh, allowed. I mean, you know, people will say, you know, in your heart you're allowed to be Christian, but the moment that you start acting on tra Christian traditions, biblical values, to try to maintain them in, you know, in, in any region or locality, you'll immediately be met with people who simply see Christianity as darkness and barbarism as something that, you know, we've overcome it. You know, thanks to the Supreme Court, Christian values are, you know, one by one by one, they've been uh, knocked over. And a, a, a condition in which Christianity uh, raises its head and becomes a, uh, a, a, a player again in the, uh, in, in the public life of the country and in the political arena, as it, as it was a few decades ago, that is impossible for many people to accept. It's, it, it's not legitimate. They will, they will not allow it. They'll use whatever tools they can to prevent conservative Christianity from gaining any kind of power over, over virtually anything. You know, and, and at the same time, I think the Supreme Court, and you can tell me if you agree with this, but it seems like it's one of the few institutions which was I don't know, kind of like held in respect by most, by most people out there, and that perhaps now is even being threatened. I, I think that's true. This is part and parcel of overthrowing all of the traditions, all of the guardrails. When I was a kid, there was, uh, there was an assumption that there was a basic respect um, to, uh, to the Supreme Court, to the Congress, to the, pre the, the presidency, I mean, kids said all sorts of nasty things about the president, but I think that, that the, the behavior of the vast majority of adults, and certainly those in public life, to uh, the president of the United States and to the Congress and to the Supreme Court was one of giving honor, giving respect. It, uh, it, it of course, mattered if you disagreed, but, but it was a, a very basic part of citizenship that you would... Uh, give honor to the president, regardless of which political party, uh, and and that was mostly the way people lived, um, and that that has unfortunately that has ended, and uh, and and now all of public life is kind of like this 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 college dorm where uh, everybody's constantly throwing mud on every institution, uh, regardless of how how revered or important it is. If it doesn't come up with the answers you believe in, it, you know, it, it just should be dismantled. I mean, take a look at, 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 at pe people keep bringing up eliminating the, uh, 
the, uh, the Electoral College, which is to, to say uh, um, uh, repealing the regime that has elected the President of the United States for the last uh, 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 two centuries and more. What are they talking about? What they're, what they're talking about is saying, tradition has no relevance to me. The only thing that has relevance to me is how I can make sure that this country is liberal and that conservatives are, are, are pushed out of public life. Whatever tools are necessary, that's what we're going to use. You know, it's very interesting because as I was reading and as you're talking now, I keep thinking about this, that uh, it's almost like this uh, woke neo-Marxist Marxism, as you call it, is a sort of harsh backlash to this kind of unbridled individualism of the last you know, however many years post-World War II, right? I, I don't know if you see it, you would see it that way, but I, I, that's just a fascinating thought in a way. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that's a, that is exactly right, that um, this is something that um, conservative thinkers um, were already emphasizing in, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, the, uh, uh, Irving Kristol, uh, who, who had a big role in, in, in giving me my start because he, he, he funded the Princeton Tory when we founded it. Um, Irving Kristol um, wrote a book called Two Cheers for Capitalism. And his reason for not giving three cheers, I mean, he, uh, admitted that capitalism is the system that uh, leads to the economic growth the best and, and provides uh, um, liberty for innovation and, 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 and material progress. He agreed with all of that. But the reason he would only give uh, ca capitalism two cheers instead of three was because he said, look, capitalism is about um, empowering the private individual and giving him the maximum degree of, of choices as to you know, what business he or she will go into, what products he or she makes, um, where you take employment, what the conditions of employment are, the, it, its openness and its freedom is an integral part of what makes capitalism work. The problem is that as you continually hammer on this, uh, this individual liberty that, that the market requires, as, as you keep reinforcing it and you keep emphasizing it, what Crystal said is that then what happens is that this um, excessive focus on the individual acts as a solvent to destroy all um, loyalty to, to groups, you know, beginning with the family, which are the, 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 the family is not about, you know, the family is not about primarily about personal choice. The, the, the children are not, do not choose to be born into the family they're born into. They don't choose their parents. In fact, it, when you're a parent, you'll eventually figure out that you don't choose your children either. They, I mean, they, each one of them is different. They come into the world. You don't get to decide who and what they are. The bonds of the family are uh, based on a mutual loyalty, which is traditional, which is uh, um, uh, backed up by, by, uh, uh, by the Bible and by, by scriptural tradition and, and, and by the way that we've lived in, you know, in, in uh, uh, Christian countries for, for, for a couple thousand years. And if you try to bring the, uh, the liberalism of the market into the family, well, what do you get? So Chris, Irving Crystal says, well, what you get is um, husbands and wives, they start treating each other like they're commodities, like um, 
I don't, I don't choose to be in this marriage anymore. You know, I, I, I chose to be in it before, but now I don't choose anymore. So, so marriages start to fall apart because the, 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 the principle of some kind of greater loyalty um, to, to your spouse, to the community, to, before God, that idea of greater loyalty is, is dissolved under the pressure of, uh, uh, of the market saying, no, everything, everything is, is free choices. You need maximum choice. And the same thing happens uh, with uh, the relationship between a people and, and a nation, that it becomes, it, if, if it becomes a matter of choice, so uh, you can choose whether to serve in the military. And then, you know, serving in the military becomes, you know, an entirely volunteer thing. Do you feel like it? Do you not feel like it? The, the, the question of what do we owe to our country becomes an absurd thing because we don't, what do you mean? I, I don't owe anything. I, I, I just... You know, I'm free to choose. I have natural right to choose whatever I want. So even conservatives, you know, the great majority of conservatives understand the value of, of the market me mechanism as, an as a way of conducting, conducting an economy. But conservatives also see it as a solvent, as something that dissolves all the other um, bonds that hold society together. And take a look at the way that individualism has uh, destroyed the possibility of uh, of a traditional family uh, or a or a traditional nation, and that that is in fact what conservatives are ha have been warning about and and need to fight against. That that's the problem. So this is very interesting because I've been thinking about how very often that there's some kind of the ideal situation is some kind of balance, right, between liberalism and conservatism. And you know that for certain things, the more liberal approach is better. For certain things, a more conservative approach is better. But that's actually kind of, kind of what you're saying here inherently, yes. right? Yeah, yes, yes. It, 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 I think I, I argue in the book that um, that the the conservative tradition, whether whether you're looking at the tradition of uh, Selden and Burke and Disraeli in uh, in the UK, or you're looking at the uh, the uh, the American conservative tradition, which you know, begins you know, obviously in co colonial times, but at the founding is represented by George Washington and uh, the Federalist Party. They, they were actually the Nationalist Conservative Party in those days in America. It was called the Federalist Party. And, and, and Washington and his, his group, both on both sides of the Atlantic, they see the, the aims of government as being uh, 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 requiring a balance among you know, six or seven or eight different purposes of government. And so when you take the American Constitution, which was not written by the liberals, it was written by the conservatives of those days, um, the, the preamble of the American Constitution does, does talk, obviously, about the blessings of liberty. But in addition, beyond that, it talks about things like, uh, uh, you know, in order to form a more perfect union, forming unions and making them perfect is not something that the market can do. Individual liberties can't do that. It comes from someplace else. The, the, the preamble talks about establishing justice. It talks about the general welfare. The general welfare of the country is not something that, that you know, the individual doing whatever is in his interests is thinking about. But government and, and, and public figures more generally, not just government, you know, the, the head of a high-tech corporation, the, the guy who runs Twitter, he or she also needs to be thinking about the general welfare, about you know, what's good for this nation? What do I owe this nation? What, what would be in its interest? 
and when everybody stops doing that, then you know, then 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 you start getting people saying, "Oh, you know, what would be in my interest?" And in and, and I'm completely free to do it because uh, uh, b b because I have a natural right to do whatever I want. People who think like that, they also say, "Well, you know, pornography. Um, people want to buy pornography. I want to sell it." It doesn't matter if every kid has it, you know, has it pumped into his life on his uh, smartphone. It doesn't matter whether it's whether it's addictive, whether it's degrading, whether it nothing matters other than the fact that there are people who can, you know, who want to buy it and people want to sell it. I think conservatives um, have come to realize, are coming to realize that 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 you need some kind of balance among principles. It can't only be individual liberty on every issue all the time. There has to be a balance, and conservatism is exactly about striking that balance among six or seven different principles, and, and if you do it right, you know, the British and the Americans have been very good at it, then you can reach, a, a, in, in real life, a, a durable defense, uh, not only of the nation, but also of individual liberties. I just want to mention, you know, you have this wonderful chapter or section of the book at the end, uh, just kind of about your own sort of formation of your own thinking. I thought that was very valuable because you can kind of see how you've come to some of the ideas that you have, you know, and there's this one moment in there where uh, you're talking about how you're, you and your future wife are getting to know each other and you realize that you have this, or you realize or you decide, I'm not sure, that you have this you know, bond, and the bond is that you're just gonna be committed no matter what. Yeah. That's very, I, I relate to that. I have the same, we had the same moment with my, with my own wife. The second piece is this, um, you talk about the you know, inaugural issue of the Princeton Tory. Um, this piece that you put in there, and I, and I have to read from here because I think it's somewhat prescient. You, you know, you, you're basically describing how uh, the rise of a churchless faith that claimed to place reason at the center, but which was in reality no less bigoted and intolerant than the traditional religions it sought to displace. That this was something that was, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of you're forecasting that this is, this is something that might happen. And a lot of people are arguing that this is what has happened now. Yes. Right. So I, I, was, I was 19 years old when, uh, when, when I wrote that article. Um, in the first issue of the Princeton Tory, which was our, you know, our conservative magazine on, uh, on the Princeton campus, and uh, and I was uh, siding with the Ronald Reagan and Jerry Falwell camp that saw cr uh, Christianity as crucial to the public life of the country, and uh, regarded uh, 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 liberalism as a as kind of a substitute for for religion and. Uh, I, I think at the time it was very difficult for people to to understand how liberalism could be a substitute for religion. But at this point, now that liberalism has collapsed into uh, woke neo-Marxism, I, I think it's really easy for people to see that it is an alternative an alternative religion. Um, let me just just say something about Julie and me uh, becoming uh, adopting a conservative life, which. Uh, at the time on the Princeton campus, there was, there, there was a kind of a, a conservative revival going on, um, which affected Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. It, it, there was just an awful lot of um, people coming back to their religion as part of the, 
you know, at atmosphere of, of uh, uh, religious nationalism and let's make our nation great again. And I think that for us, um, we wanted to get married and start a family uh, because for us in those days, you know, um, it was, um, that's how you became an adult. You know, you took on the responsibilities of adulthood by marrying, beginning a family, beginning a family, and committing to raising them. You know, not until they're eighteen, but committing for your entire life to uh, to be responsible for uh, for for these children and to train train them and to bring them into our faith tradition and our our historical national tradition. And um, I see young people today, and I, I, I understand that even the ones that most, uh, that want to be loyal, they want to be loyalists. Um, I can see this among my children. I mean, you know, so, some children, when they reach adolescence, they, they feel like they have to rebel. And some children, they, they feel like, no, they, their place is to, you know, is to help mom and dad to continue whatever it is that they're doing. They're different kinds of children, and, and there's a lot to say about each of them. But but if I were to generalize, I would say that, that my children and their friends are, they're scared to, they hesitate, they're scared to do things like, like uh, getting married and having children and serving in the military and almost anything that we, we a generation ago thought, wow, we really want to do this. Let's, let's get to it so that we can take on the responsibilities of adulthood and start you know, contributing to the history that we're a part of. That's not where they are. Where, the, where they are is they, they, they feel uh, uncertain about, you know, is this the right thing? Should I get married? Shouldn't I get married? Is this the right person? Is it not the right person? I can't tell you how often um, I, 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 I've been asked by my kids and by, by others, um, how can you know? But you can't know, right? I mean, the, there's, there is no way to know. I mean, the marriage bond is a leap of faith. You, you know, you know a lot about the person, you know, you're marrying as they are at a certain moment, maybe not everything, but you know a lot about them. But the problem is that you don't know who they're going to be 20 years from now. You just don't. And, and to hold the marriage together is, it's, it's not just a commitment to um, yes, I consent to be with this person the way they are now. You're, you're, you're agreeing to or vowing to be faithful to someone who you haven't met yet, who is going to exist 20 years from now. And both sides have to understand. People, people they grow, they change, they grow apart. And then they have to grow back together again, which is possible. You can do it if both sides are committed, if they, if, if, if they have the faith to, that this can happen, this can work. Um, so if you're growing up in a community where you've seen it, you know, all around you, you see families that uh, remain intact for 30, 40, 50 years. And, and if you look closely, you know that it's not because, you know, they're in love, you know, like in a Hollywood movie and their love has never, never been troubled. It's nothing like that at all. The, their love is the, the love between a man and a woman who are married 40 years that love is expressed in the fact that their relationship has changed and the attractions of youth they've weakened and now there are other attractions there are other issues the thing has been is has been worked on and rebuilt and therefore it's steady and stable and strong and it can be magnificent
but it's based on a leap of faith. The whole thing is based on a leap of faith. The same thing about about your your commitment to your nation, your commitment to your children, your commitment, to, uh, all sorts of commitments that we we take on are not really about. They're not really about choice, because even if you make a choice initially, later it's you're not going to have a choice. You're going to be you, you're making a choice to not have a choice for your whole life, and still that's the right thing to do according to our traditions. According, if you are within our guardrails, that's what you do. Uh, but that needs to be restored now. Well, and so this is the big question, isn't it? I mean, right now there's this ascendant and illiberal, illiberal ideology that's kind of becoming the dominant culture. And now you have to be understanding of its precepts and organizing principles and moving forward. So, you know, what, what is the way forward in a situation like this? Conservatism has, uh, you know, conservative thinkers talk a, lo a lot about uh, restoration. Um, the, the, reason, the reason that this word is so important to, in the conservative tradition is because if you're realistic about traditions, you see that they always run down. There's no such thing as a tradition that is uh, transmitted, you know, with uh, uh, perfect clarity and completeness from one generation to the next. Things change, people change, situations change. So a real tradition, a living tradition, is one that it works really well during a certain time and then it starts to run down. It starts to come in to, to, to hit problems under pressure from, from, from events, circumstances, bad leadership, any number of reasons. And then what conservatism is about in that next generation um, is looking for a way to bring about restoration. A restoration is not, you know, it, it, it's not an attempt to make everything the way that it was, you know, in, in, you know, in the 1940s or the 1950s. There, there's no such thing. You can't, you can't just make everything the way it was, you know, by, by clicking a button. Um, but what you can do is when you see that things are running down, you can look back and look for um, precedents and models uh, um, in, in among your own ancestors and the, the, the tradition of your own people, look for precedents and models that worked. Well, I just wanted to jump in because there's certain things that you would want and then there's other things like, for example, Jim Crow, which you decidedly wouldn't want, right? So you're, you're kind of, you're picking, you're picking the best and... Uh, all the conservative thinkers um, that I'm familiar with uh, say that in fact they're, they're, every generation has a responsibility to repair the tradition. John Selden, who's you know, one of the great British figures who shaped the common law tradition, you, you can almost say that he's the, the father of the American Bill of Rights because the, uh, the idea of writing down these, these rights was something that he and his group came up with uh, about 150 years before uh, the Americans copied them and, and, and did it in the United States. So Selden is emphatic about this. He's, you know, he's an arch traditionalist, but but he says you can't you you know you can't take every foolish thing that's uh, that's become attached to the tradition through you know through accident or, or or historical mistake and and treat it as though it's holy. That's impossible. You I mean our 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 job of maintaining a tradition involves a selection of the parts that are healthy and strong and good, uh, and, and an assumption, you know, a presumption that 
that that things that we don't that we don't understand everything so we don't want to change everything but when there's something that is you know clearly destructive clearly a mistake it's your job to repair it and so i write about uh, the issue of jim 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 crow in the book and i you know i fully identify i mean i completely identify with this uh with um the uh, the generation that came back from the war that defeated nazism and came home and said millions of people just died in this 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 war fighting racism and we can't continue to have the same kind of uh, uh, racial persecution in our own country. I, I'm 100% in sympathy with that. I think there was a mistake. I think the mistake of uh, 1960s Enlightenment liberalism, the mistake was to say, oh, well, blacks should be equal to rights and we need, we need to make a major push uh, by public and private institutions to, to end persecution of blacks in this country. Okay, that far, that, that makes sense. But then what they did was they, they said, okay, well, while we're at it, you know, let's not just outlaw discrimination. You know, discrimination means making distinctions. So we'll outlaw making distinctions not only between black and white, which they should have done, but also we're outlawing distinctions between, um, you know, between uh, Christians and Jews, distinction, distinctions between men and women distinctions on the basis of national origin. You know, so, so, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 takes all of these huge categories and says, nowhere in society are you gonna allow distinctions on the basis of any of these things. Right? And, and, and uh, it was applied to immigration too. The uh, Immigration Act in 1965 explicitly forbids making distinctions on the basis of national origin. You're not allowed to say things like, um, maybe it would be better to have immigrants from Christian countries, at least in larger numbers than Im immigrants from, from other countries. That, that kind of thinking became illegitimate. And th that's why I say it was kind of like a, um, the establishment of a new constitution. It was a liberal constitution that was, uh, that was new. And there were good aspects to it in, in the fight against Jim Crow, for sure, maybe if, uh, in other things, but in general, the idea that you would take a tool, an anti, a legal anti-discrimination tool that was designed in order to bring relief to persecuted black Americans, you take that tool and apply it at the same time in the same wording to all these other groups who have diff completely different issues and completely different problems. You, you know, I mean, just to, to give you an example, um, for, for blacks it was a major, uh, an objective major difficulty, a part of their being persecuted, that blacks had to go to separate schools and they couldn't attend the schools that the white kids went to. I mean, that, that was a, 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 a fountain of injustice, a source of real injustice. But now if you think about, you know, Protestants, Catholics, Jews, and, and other minorities, Hindu, Muslim, any uh, atheists, is, is it true that what, we, that, that what they need it's all to go to the same schools? I mean, that, that's, not, that's not immediately obvious. The fact that blacks and whites should go to the same schools doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best thing is for Christians and Jews and atheists to all go to the same schools. Maybe, maybe they'd like to have you know, their own schools. The Enlightenment liberal uh, mindset, it's really blockheaded. I mean, it's, it really makes no sense. 
women have to have women have to be equal to men in every way because blacks have to be equal to whites in every way. That that doesn't follow. It doesn't make sense. There's some ways in which men and women should be equal, and there are other ways in which they 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 might not. It might not be appropriate for the, for them to be equal. But you know, maybe washroom facilities should not be you know uh, unified. But that's just the beginning of the discussion. So I I, I think that um, that. Uh, Enlightenment liberalism is characterized by this kind of blockheaded thinking that you found a problem, it's a real injustice, it's a real problem, you have a proposal for how to solve it, and then you expand that proposal to, to cover many, many other categories, and then you just keep expanding it. So you, it's expanded to, to add sexual orientation, and it's expanded to, to add equality on the basis of, of whatever, di disabilities, age. You just keep going. And as you keep going, what you're doing is you are removing from the political leadership and the public leadership the ability to make fine judgments and distinctions about what people really need, what different groups actually need, what they actually want, and, and not, not only that, but about what, what, what society is actually capable of, of giving. Because you know, every time that you give somebody a right, you take rights from someone else. And that, that is almost never discussed, that requiring private institutions to have both, to, to allow blacks and whites both, to, uh, requiring the private institutions to do that, that's a violation of a certain right, the, the, the right to freely run your business the way you want to. Now, I'm in favor of the, that, that violation of that right. I'm in favor of that trade-off. But every time you grant somebody a right, you're, you're taking rights away from somebody else. As you can see, from you know, people want the right to be able to order a gay wedding cake in in every cake cake shop in the country. So that means you will take away the right to run a Christian business according to traditional Christian principles about what wedding cakes are supposed to look like. And 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 we've stopped having the conservative, the traditionalist, realist, conservative discussion about how do we balance am uh, among different rights? How do we balance among the needs of different groups? What are the real needs of the different groups? What's most important to them and how do we strike that balance? Th that's, that's, that's something that has to be decided through prudence, through negotiation, through consultation, through, you know, through, through, through conflict and resolution. You can't decide it you know, through some calculus of, of an abstract natural rights theory. Not, not a one-size-fits-all solution, basically. Right. Yes, and that's and Edmund Burke, you know, one of the greatest conservative thinkers. Um, that's basically what he says about universal rights theories. He he, he doesn't say there are no rights. He he just says that the theory that you can take rights like freedom and equality and fraternity and and justice take these vast, abstract, vague terms and use them to directly decide what should be what's right for everybody in the country and everybody in the world it's absurd it's just it, it it's just not true you can't do it it can't be done as we finish up um, i do want to talk a little bit about your vision for conservative democracy because you spend some time looking at that i specifically wanted to look at you know the question of public religion because i felt that might be one of the most contentious uh, parts of the proposal but but just in general why don't you give me the quick overview America and Britain and, and other countries that are uh, influenced by uh, American and British ideas um, need to uh, revert 
to a to the conservative tradition, uh, which uh, is is easy to find if you're looking for it. Uh, that means setting setting Enlightenment liberalism aside and uh, trying to use the uh, the inherited religious, constitutional, national traditions as a uh, as a framework for for thinking about how do you know how do we go forward in in our society? So uh, you're, you're right that uh, religion is at the heart of that because uh, because conservative a, con a conservative view says there's no such thing as a society uh, without some kind of overarching um, uh, public religion or public philosophy, if you want to call it that. Th there are basic assumptions of every society, and we've seen examples of how. Christian assumptions can be replaced in the United States by liberal assumptions um, in, in, you know, after World War II. And now we're seeing a similar uh, attempt to replace liberal assumptions with, with these neo-Marxist assumptions. And uh, I think that if people care for the future of America, um, of the UK, you know, these, these wonderful nations, uh, if you care about it, then I think that you need to be asking what was lost when uh, when Christianity, when biblical tradition ceased to be the guardrails, ceased to be the the overarching public philosophy of of the country. And you know, obviously, um, a country like the United States now has, uh, you know, there, it's a very large country, and there are many places where uh, where Christian and biblical tradition is, is a non-starter. And there are many places where I think where, where there are still majorities that would much prefer to have a, uh, a, a public life that's based on biblical tradition and, and on, on Christian ideas than what, what is clearly coming, um, which is, you know, I, I, I think it's just taking this country over the abyss. Um, so what does that mean in practice? In practice, it means that the line of Supreme Court decisions that began in 1947 with the declaration that uh, uh, separation of church and state had to take place at the state level in all, all states in, in, in the United States and on all, all religious issues, uh, I, I think that that was mis a terrible mistake. And um, I, I think what, what is going to happen, I think it's, you know, I. I don't know if it's going to succeed, but I'm pretty sure that what's going to happen is that um, many Christians are going to look at, at the new woke public religion and they're going to say, um, this, is simply, this is simply too far. We need, we, we need to go back. We need to restore. We need to get to a restoration of, it, of aspects of, of what the country was like um, you know, be, be, before the Enlightenment. Uh, liberal revolution uh, after World War II. But you don't think that Enlightenment liberalism can really be reestablished. I mean, that's what you're arguing. So you just get yes, that, that that that's true. I think um, in the 1960s the belief was, and I and I'm I'm talking about a belief that was held um, both by large sections of the left and by large sections of the right. the The belief was. That um, that liberalism is, you know, th th that the idea of uh, all all human beings being uh, equal and all human beings being free, 
the idea that that was sufficient, that, that those principles and, and, and the principle of consent of choice, that those are sufficient in order to um, maintain a country over generations, I think that that idea has been proved false. Uh, the United States tried it, the UK tried it, the Europeans tried it. It, it lasted for two generations. I mean, they, they thought that this was, that they had the final answer, like of what politics, what, what a just, fair, reasonable politics would be for all time. And it lasted two generations. So in, in my book, I go into the, uh, into the question of, of what it is about liberalism that self-destructs, to put it too simply. Because liberalism doesn't emphasize tradition, but rather, you know, reason, you know, everybody should just think for themselves and be free to choose, everything will be okay. Because of that, what happens is that, that uh, liberals teach their kids to you know, think for themselves, which you know, in, it, in itself is, is, is a good thing. But, but what they're really saying is the traditions are irrelevant. You don't need to inherit the ideas of the past. You don't need to work to receive and then transmit ideas to future generations because you're smart enough, you'll just figure it out yourself. And when you say that, and the kids are thinking for themselves, and they come home and they say, you know what, I think Marxism is better than liberalism. Or, or I think uh, white identitarian, you know, neo-Darwinian you know, quasi-fascism is better than liberalism. I've been thinking about it. I've, I, I've exercised my reason. It, my views are reasonable. Here, those kids, they can, you know, they can just talk for hours explaining to you how reasonable what they think is. And so the, the, the issue is, is it important to maintain anything from the past or are you just perfectly happy to, to, to have uh, no inheritance and every generation will just make it up as they go along and they'll just become crazier and crazier until, uh, until this country disappears, until it just collapses, you know, and, and, and it falls into pieces and gets invaded and becomes something completely different. Is that what you want? If that's what you want, then just keep telling your kids there's, there's no need for tradition, there's, there is no inheritance, figure it out yourself. You tell them that, you, you'll get what we, see, what we plainly see coming. So yes, I think that the idea of pure enlightenment liberalism, liberalism is all you need, freedom, 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 all the time, all issues, we did that. It doesn't work. And so, you know, I guess as a kind of final thought here, um, this idea of transmission, that word keep, kept coming up and, you know, and just having very, uh, I guess, effective ways of transmitting historical lessons and culture and so forth is sort of critical to the vision. And it, it made me think, you know, this is very much something that's very strong in the Jewish tradition, actually, right? You're right that um, one of the big differences between ancient Jewish political thought as, as you find it in the Bible and then in, you know, in the rabbinic literature, differences between Judaism and, the, uh, and Greek philosophy, one of the major differences is that, um, that Judaism focuses on, uh, on family and nation. I, I mean, obviously there's a, a, a great focus on God and scripture, but socially, anthropologically, because I mean, the, the Bible thinks in terms of families, families, clans, tribes, and nations. And, um, and it is constantly concerned, the, biblical, the prophets, the biblical authors are constantly concerned with this question of um, teach this to your children, 
teach this to your children. In, in, in the Old Testament, um, justice itself, you know, the, the way the world works is that, um, is that sins propagate. When you do something wrong, it propagates to the third and fourth generation. I mean, the, the, the idea in the Bible, the political idea is you do something and there's no way to avoid, if, if, you know, if, if you're an alcoholic, there is no way to avoid your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren suffering, bearing the, you know, the, the weight of what it is that, that you did. If parents get divorced, the impact of that is to the third and fourth generation. And, and you can continue, continue saying that about anything. So the idea of intergenerational transmission, both of righteousness and wisdom and prudence and, and, and a God-fearing worldview, and also the reverse, the way that evil doing and, and, and foolishness transmit themselves from generation to the next, that, that's at the, the heart of the way that the Bible thinks, thinks about politics. My, academic field is political theory. I, you know, I, that, that's how I, uh, where I got my official um, academic training. And it, it's the strangest thing to, that, that uh, a society like America or Britain that were built on um, extremely widespread reading of the Old Testament um, and, 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 and taking the Bible to heart at all levels of society Today you can't, you know, you can't find that. Kids go to school; it's not in school. They go to universities. You can't find any discussion of this stuff in in almost any academic set, setting in, in in undergraduate or graduate school. It's just not there. So uh, everybody's, you know, everybody's thinking in terms of Enlightenment liberal ideas. There's some interest in classical Greek and Roman sources, but none of those sources address these issues. And the only way that we can actually restore an understanding about the way the, the world actually works is by, by uh, returning to studying the Bible. And, um, you know, I, I hope that's still possible. Um, and one final thought, and I, I just realized you did touch on this a little bit when you were talking about, you know, basically how to... I suppose, you know, leave the thinking about how to incorporate religion into, I guess, the life of the political unit, so to speak, to, to bring, I, I got the sense that you're suggesting that you bring it to the state level or perhaps even a more granular level. Is that, did I understand that correctly? I think simply as a practical matter, um, you know, you, there are some, there's a small number of people on the right who, um, who, uh, say, oh, you know, the Supreme Court, the, the administrative state, that's where decision-making is made, so, um, so let's just impose on the country, um, you know, um, our ideas instead of their ideas. So I, I, I understand that, but I don't think it's practical. I don't think it's going to happen. I, th I, I think the, the only way that there's going to be a reasonable move um, to experimenting with, uh, with uh, different kinds of conservative democracy is, uh, is if, uh, if states where there's a majority that wants conservatism, a conservative democracy, a Christian democracy, states that want that should be allowed to experiment with it. I mean, that, that's the only way that we're going to find out, you know, whether it's the most horrible thing in the world, like, like you know, many liberals think, 
uh, or whether actually maybe you know maybe today Christian democracy and in, in, uh, could be a better system for lots of people. Maybe it'll catch on. Maybe people like it. The only way that we know is if 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 people are going to that we're going to find out is if if, if people are allowed to to experiment uh, in this way. And I, uh, I I just I I think that the you know the idea of let you know let's dictatorially impose from you know from Washington you know, a Christian answer for the entire country. I mean, that, that, that's not going to happen. Uh, it, at least it's not going to happen um, uh, uh, un unless the United States goes through um, a, a much, much more radical convulsion than even what we're seeing now. And that's possible, but I think that decent people should be praying that that doesn't happen. And we should do, we as conservatives, we should do whatever we can to restore uh, the best of the Anglo-American tradition Rather than you know just participating in the uh, in the you know the fantasies about you know what kind of dictatorship would you know would work best here. Well, Yoram Khazani, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thank you, thank you for giving me so much time, and it's really great to see. Thank you all for joining Yoram Khazani and me uh, for this episode of American Thought Leaders. His book again is Conservatism: A Rediscovery. I'm your host, Yanya Kalik. Try a 14-day free trial of Epoch TV at ept.ms slash freetrialjan. That's ept.ms slash freetrialjan. You've just watched an abridged version of this American Thought Leaders episode. To see the full version, you can stream it on Epoch TV at epochtv.com. You can also find us on Roku, Apple TV, Fire TV, and other OTT platforms.